break 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 It's been one year since war broke out between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF. As the TPLF, which initiated this war, advances towards Ethiopia's capital, prompting the government to declare a state of emergency, the war isn't only escalating on the ground, but also on the internet and in the media. Often, American foreign policy has a surprising effect on the immigrant communities of the U.S., be they Serbian or Iraqi or from wherever the attention of Washington and its loyal media has turned. Many Ethiopian Americans have been outraged by Washington's sudden hostility to Addis Ababa and seeming sympathy with the TPLF insurgency, as well as the one-sided media coverage. Hermela Aragawi is an Ethiopian American journalist now caught in the controversy between rival communities. She's reported for outlets such as Al Jazeera America, the CBS affiliate in Los Angeles, and the Young Turks on Current TV, among others. She's recently been calling out much of the Western media's bias in the reporting of the conflict in Ethiopia. She joined me to discuss this and more. Hermela, welcome. Hi, thank you, Rania. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on. You've been, you know, all over the place talking about this issue. And I guess before we get started, actually, I do want to give a reminder to our viewers and listeners that you can listen to every episode of Dispatches anywhere you get podcasts. And for our listeners, you can watch every episode on the Breakthrough News YouTube page. Be sure to subscribe. And of course, you can support our work at patreon.com slash Breakthrough News. And now to the topic at hand. Um, Hermela, you know, before we get into the biased media coverage and the nature of the TPLF and also some of the controversy you've been dealing with personally, as you know, November 4th is the one year anniversary of the war in Ethiopia. And as we reflect on what's transpired over the last year, it really is looking to me like the U.S. is supporting or at least optics wise, it looks like the U.S. is supporting some sort of violent coup by the TPLF, which, as we know, ruled Ethiopia quite brutally for 30 years until they were pushed out in 2018. And now, you know, they've launched this violent assault um, that has, you know, they're moving south towards the capital, uh, all in an effort to, to basically regain power. And the U.S. is punishing the government with sanctions and suspending them from the African Growth and Opportunity Act, all basically for fighting back. So, you know, to start off, can you briefly tell our viewers on this one year anniversary of the TPLF attacks on the Ethiopian government's Northern command base, what was the significance of those attacks and what has happened over the course of the year to bring us to this point today where there's talk of Addis potentially falling to the TPLF? Yeah, well, that initial decision a year ago to attack the Northern Command has had devastating effects. It was a really bad move that did not consider what the people were going to go through because of it. Um, you know, initially there were some debate about whether they attacked the Northern Command, but the TPLF actually admitted it. They just justified it as a preemptory attack, and that started a war. 
um, which was clear to the majority of us. But in terms of the uh, Tigrayan activists and the TPLF, they started calling it a genocide, that this was not just about the TPLF leadership that the government was trying to fight, but about the very people in that region, which happened to be mostly ethnic Tigrayans. And I happen to be ethnic Tigrayan. TPLF stands for Tigrayan People Liberation Front. They were originally started about 50 years ago for that cause, but they have strayed from that uh, initial cause for a very long time. Um, Tigray in many ways is really poor. There's not been a whole lot of development in that region. And especially after that um, group went into power in 1991, uh, they seem to be more focused in Addis Ababa and other parts of Ethiopia as opposed to that region. But three years ago, uh, when there just couldn't be an agreement between Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government and the previous leadership TPLF. There were a lot of efforts to try to get them to come to the table and come to negotiations. From what I understand and people that I've talked to, uh, there was business people, uh, religious leaders, just people with uh, you know famous names that went to Tigray and tried to negotiate, gave so many options. And for whatever reason, TPLF did not want to take any of them and instead went to go in the direction of war. So uh, a lot of civilians have been caught up in this, a lot of credible reports of rape. Uh, today, the UNHCR, UNHCR and the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission joint investigation came out and it said there were uh, crimes committed by all parties in the conflict, which is what the majority of us, I would say, which anyone that wasn't so pro any group said, of course, that's going to happen. Once you start a war, you're not going to be able to control everything that has happened. Uh, whereas, you know, the TPLF and people who are pro that say everything that has happened is done by Eritrean troops and Ethiopian government and Amhara militia. And there's just no accountability in terms of what uh, Tigrayan militias have done in that report. Uh, a couple of the more significant ones in terms of large civilian casualties were two things. The Maikadja massacre, which happened really early on in November, where 200, according to this report, people of Amhara ethnicity were killed. And then in Aksum, where uh, I don't know if they said their ethnicity was all Tigrayan, but that, that those crimes were committed by 100 people by the Ethiopian uh, defense forces. So that's, you know, when you when you're calculating a war, that should be the kind of things that you take into mind. But uh, it just seems to me that the people were not a factor uh, when whoever the leadership was at the time in Tigray decided to attack the Northern Command. And then you look at the media coverage and, you know, basically, you know, uh, juxtaposed to what you just said, we're obviously in a war like all sides are just committing atrocities. That's what happens. It's terrible. But the media coverage really frames everything in this very black and white way where the Ethiopian government's the bad guy and the TPLF are like these noble rebels fighting to break this humanitarian siege. So, you know, how is this conflict in your view being misrepresented, particularly in the American media? And why do you think it's so one-sided? Well, my guess is that the U.S. is going with their old partner, right? TPLF was their partner for a very long time, from 91 to 2018. That was the, the, the group that led the coalition that ran the country. I'm sure there's a lot of personal relationships, a lot of financial uh, gains that are uh, made between partners, although, uh, you know, I can't necessarily speak to specifics on that. But clearly there is an alliance a beneficial alliance for those two groups, but that 
benefit does not necessarily trickle down to the Ethiopian people. During those years, a lot of, a lot of Ethiopians have complained about human rights abuses. Human Rights Watch has uh, led cre- or given credence to some of those uh Uh, allegations. But there wasn't really a lot of efforts, just like you see this investigation. This is what you want a government to do, regardless Mm. of what they are going to find among their own soldiers. You want a government that says, "Okay, go ahead, come in, UN or whoever the independent body is supposed to be. And then we'll do a joint investigation with our government. But those kind of things did not happen during the TPLF reign. There were efforts to get the UN in and to do joint investigations, but eventually uh, they would be curtailed. There were protests in 2005 after the election where a lot of Ethiopians got killed because they thought the election was rigged and TPLF won anyway. Uh, It's starting in 2015. There were a lot of unrest a few years after the former Prime Minister Melissa Nawi died. There were a lot of protests. People were just sick of living under this oppressive regime, uh, and yet it didn't. It wasn't until uh, 20, uh, 2018 that, that, mm-hmm. that Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed was voted in, and he was voted in by TPLF leadership and the parliament that they had created. Uh, but I, it just seemed that maybe they thought that he was going to be a puppet and that he wasn't, uh, wasn't really going to go in his own direction. And when he started to try to move around some of the military uh, people and equipment, which were dominantly loyal to TPLF and there became a lot of issues. Uh, they went ahead and had that election in, I believe it was October, September 2020 uh, in the height of the pandemic. Anyway, uh, the government said they weren't go- they were going to delay their elections because of the pandemic. And, you know, essentially the war sort of started when they went ahead and had that election. I mean, if you think about whether any state in the United States can decide to just go ahead with their own type of election, uh, outside of the system that's created, it's essentially starting a war. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they actually started the physical war uh, in early November. You know, they justify it by saying there were troops that were moving around on the north part, Eritrean troops and in the south. But nonetheless, you had an election that was considered illegal and you actually went ahead and pulled the trigger. So to your point, a lot of the U.S.-based or Western-based media does not highlight that at all. And in some cases, particularly the New York Times, there was a recent report with Declan Walsh and Mark Simons. They essentially yeah. say the government started it. So those sort of things that, you know, I've been in the business for 10 years, mostly for corporate media. I got to tell you, I will never again take at face value any report from the New York Times, AP, CNN, even Reuters or the BCC or the BBC about any foreign country. I can't do it. There's just been so many bold face lies and omissions in the reporting that I, you can't even call it journalism at all. It's purely propaganda. Yeah, I mean, it's also, you know, I'm curious, like, I've seen you talk about this before, but the influence of the TPLF on the coverage. And I'm curious, like, if you have anything to say about the influence of fixers, like me, myself being in the Middle East, I've seen this uh, issue at play before where fixers do have a lot of influence over how reporters end up covering a story. Um, And it, it, you know, I have seen reports that the TPLF has quite a little circle of fixers that a lot of these journalists who visit the areas actually end up working with so what and and not just fixtures i mean in the u.s itself like what is the role of the tplf when it comes to the media narrative are they influencing it oh uh, absolutely they they seem to be the only ones influencing it so 
one of the things that gives me an advantage in terms of perspective is in the beginning of the war, my mom happened to be in that region. She lived in the States for 26 years and had gone back as a PhD chemist to help the university in Makele do some research. So I was particularly invested because of the communication blackout. And I was really trying to uh, do as much as I can work with humanitarian so-called activists, which ultimately ended up being pro-TPLF activists. So I'm very much aware how the information gets through. Literally, activists get a picture or a video or information from TPLF officials there who have satellite connections. And that is what makes it into CNN and makes it into New York Times. CNN's Nima Elbagir, who I've had the chance to talk to once when I was considering potentially going to the refugee camps in Sudan. She's very close with uh, the head of who, who's a TPLF member himself. Uh, she, a lot of the contacts that she wanted to give me to get information on Sudan were literally TPLF affiliated folks. So when you see her report, it shows, it shows there are no reports on CNN about, uh, the, the Tigrayan militias moving into the Amhara Afar regions and killing a bunch of people after the government declared a ceasefire after June. Uh, there are no reports of Tigrayan militias or Tigrayan forces or uh, TPLF officials committing any crimes. It just can't be true, logically speaking. It doesn't take a genius, right? It can't be true that this war is started by this group and that they're not responsible for any crimes and are always <laughs> victims in every scenario, right? And so what makes this also frustrating is though, because I am ethnic to grand people are particularly upset about my questioning yeah. and having this perspective because this country has you know and and people blame tplf and it may not be true that they're all it's their blame is all on them but you can tell uh it's evident that the lines are really drawn all to grands appear to think this way although there's a lot who also uh speak out and then they actually can't speak out. Even me being in the United States, so-called free, et cetera, whatever, right? Me asking those questions literally got a swarm of people from across the world to try to intimidate me to stop. So I can't imagine what people in the country or particularly yeah. in that region, they're not able to question the decisions that are being made that affect them. Yeah, and I actually would like to like, I'd like you to elaborate on that a little bit. I think it's really interesting, you, your perspective on this conflict, especially given your background, you've talked about how like you had a bit of an evolution on this. So where did you start when this conflict began in terms of how you viewed it? And then why did it change? So you've sort of alluded to that, but it would be interesting to kind of hear your trajectory um, so, yeah. so part of it is admittedly, I did not pay attention to some of the abuses by TPLF for the majority of those like 27 years. You know, part of it is I was a child. Part of it is that I grew up in a very apolitical household. I, it was intentional that I didn't get caught up in politics. It was intentional that I didn't start to look at people from Ethiopia by ethnicity. Like it just was not a thing in my life. Um, and, and I think part also, uh, two people are afraid to speak out, even in the U.S., because a lot of them were expelled or they left as asylees. So even if they, you know, are friends with me, they're not necessarily speaking to me about that stuff. And I wasn't uh, necessarily looking for it, or I wasn't looking for it beyond the CNNs and New York Times mm -hmm. and the APs, which I just thought were legitimate sources of information. So a lot of what I was seeing was, you know, the the fastest growing GDP, like Ethiopia is growing, which it looked like it was growing to me because when I came to the States in 94, it was like, you know, on the heels of the communist war that ended up being pretty bloody and the famine, etc. And then after a while, people are more talking about artists and some growth and people coming back to Ethiopia. So one, it was the ignorance, right? Um, just the not knowing. And then two, the government is not 
best at communicating. Like that's just not their strong suit. They've gotten a little bit better, but they're, you know, they tend to speak to the Ethiopian people as opposed to an international audience. So a lot of Ethiopians know, like they know what TPLF's past is. um, And so they don't need as much explanation, but people like me or those who uh, are just, you know, more American or whatever, we need it to be kind of told to us in a certain language. So when you say this is a rule of law enforcement, it's not war. I'm like, no, it's definitely a war. It's not, <laughs> probably not a genocide. And it doesn't look like some sort of law enforcement. That doesn't sound uh, right to me either. It's a war. So a lot of my criticism was to the government. And then over time, working with the activists and seeing that people were not always uh, into the humanitarian uh, help element. There were a lot of organizations that asked for organizations that were trying to send a lot of supplies, insulin, basic things. And they had to work with the government at the time, right? I mean, it is the government still, uh, as far as I know, but definitely at the time they were in Tigray. Um, and so there was this sort of, I won't say sort of, there was intentional um, effort to say, nope, don't go with those groups. They're working with the government. Just send the money to this group or the other. And that group or the other was not being held accountable. They wouldn't tell you where the money was. So you, you can guess that a lot of it was either going to Tigray and activists or it was going to uh, all the way there to Tigray to fund the war. I mean, I talked to someone that talked about trying to smuggle some things in Sudan. And I literally was like, I do not want to know. Like, please, like, I do not want to get wrapped up in this. And those were the kind of moments that were like, okay, I have to disassociate myself. I mean, I was already asking a lot of questions and people were joking, saying like, you're a banda, which is a term for somebody that doesn't kind of follow the, the, you know, the group's thoughts and process. Um, And so a lot of people will tell you, I was already asking questions. I just wasn't publicly asking them. So you see that uh, the activists and they're not all about humanitarian aid, even though they're saying genocide. I thought the genocide term was used way too early. Um, I thought a lot of the reports about the massacres, although I admittedly shared some of them, it was just like, how are we getting all this information corroborated during a communication blackout? Like, right. it's just being pumped out with names and ages and very specific. Um, and then over time, I saw, um, uh, you know, I saw that they would count the number of civilians, but they would never tell you how many soldiers I talked to someone or a family member talked to someone who said that he was he was sent into war to grand uh, with three other people, one weapon. He was the only one that survived. So when you look at decisions like that, you think, okay, so those civilian deaths that are supposed to make us think that this is a genocide are actually deaths of soldiers who are not properly, properly equipped. Right. Yeah. Um, And then it, it, and then, so it was things like that that made me really question the other side. And then I finally just fell back, wanted to see how things would go. The other thing too is, on one end, people will say genocide. On the other, they're like, get them, like war, like we're winning. <laughs> yeah, like, right. it's just like, okay, you can't be both. Like either you're mm-hmm. a victim of genocide or you are a, a warrior fighting a war. So it was things like that that really disgusted me. And then it turned into a lot of like hating other ethnicities. Don't talk to Amharas, get rid of all your friends, which literally on video, on video, some of the leaders have said that. And then I think the breaking point for me was when the federal government actually declared a ceasefire at the end of June. And then the Tigray forces did not. (laughs) And I thought we were all I mean, not me per se. I'm not necessarily like a protester, but we were all saying say no to war all this time. And this opportunity came 
to actually accept some sort of a peace negotiation, and they did not. Instead, they moved into the different regions, and thousands of people died. So that was when I was just really kind of disgusted, and I would say I turned in some ways. Um, and then Ethiopian New Year came. I posted uh, the Ethiopian flag. That's early September, and people lost it. This is the flag of a genocider. Are you supporting wow. genocide? And I thought, you know what? This has just gone too far. You guys have been unchecked for too long. The only people that have been able to check you are people that are just considered Ethiopian and not Tigran. And then all the media is corroborating these, uh, you know, these claims that you're making. And now you have just gone too far to think mm-hmm. that you can now police me using the Ethiopian flag. So that, if if that explains a little bit, was kind of my evolution. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's actually what you're saying is so interesting because it reminds me a lot of Syria, actually. I mean, Ooh. Syria was like a longer and way more brutal war. Um, but a lot of like the kinds of patterns of you have an international network of activists and like this, you know, they're pushing information that isn't corroborated and they're throwing around genocide and all kinds of terms that also aren't corroborated. And then if you post mm-hmm. the flag, they get really mad, like... Interesting. <laughs> you know what's so interesting? Like, you know, because I've started to talk to people from different places, and now it's so interesting to hear you say that about Syria. I've talked to someone from Haiti who's like kind of does the work that we do in terms of, you know, like storytelling, really trying to tell it from like a real perspective. And when mm. she tells me some of the what happened to Haiti, it literally is like a formula. Yeah, it is. It's a it formula. Is. And yet well, it happens to our prospective countries. We're like, oh, this is the first time this is happening. Why is it <laughs> happening to us? Like, so it's, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, I don't know what it will take for us to make it like, you know, really broadly known that these are just a tactic so that every time, every time it comes up, you can have other support. Like I want to be able to speak on Syria or speak on Lebanon or speak on Haiti. I don't want it to always just be, you know, about Ethiopia because it doesn't really serve all of us in the way that it should. Um, the other thing I will say about some of the uh, gross inconsistencies is the whole humanitarian aid blockade, which the the report today found there was no evidence of intentional uh, trying to keep humanitarian aid from uh, civilians in Tigray, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's like, one, when you continue fighting and then expect uh, unrestricted humanitarian aid to go into that region, it's just insane. It's not yeah. rational to accept that, right? But yeah. they still had a lot of checkpoints the government did to let a lot of aid trucks in. And still, all the main uh, Western media stations would say, would keep, keep calling it a bla- a blockade, the government's blockade. And September, mid-September was like the sort of another aha moment was um, when when UN Ethiopia, to quote uh, Oprah, I guess, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize I just said that. So UN Ethiopia said, you know, 466 trucks had gone into uh, Tigray in mid uh, since mid July, and most of them did not come back. And then the the Ethiopian government said they suspected it was being used for T, uh, TPLF logistics. And then the uh, t- uh, Tigray spokespeople said it. Oh, it's because of uh, not enough fuel that didn't come back. I thought wait, like, you're not going to just at least lie and say they came back. Like you're ta- yeah. you're saying it's because of fuel. So I was like, this can't be true. You're talking about the United Nations. They're not going to like, it's not like us, like driving on the highway, forgot to fill up our gas and then run out in the middle of the highway, right? These are institutions that have been doing it for a long time. And the way they do it is they send the trucks and then with the trucks, they send fuel tankers. And it only takes four or five fuel tankers to fuel like 500 
you know, trucks. So uh, I did some math and looked into some of the reports and I, and I even reached out to the UN and turns out there was plenty of fuel. And then you, in the same time, you'll see video on uh, Tigray Media House and Tigray TV of these trucks. And you could see the logo and a couple of them that are transporting soldiers into the Amhara and Afar region. So the government was not blocking aid. We can say that uh, confidently. Um, and they were not trying to restrict. I mean, they're, they're almost like, in my opinion, they were too nice. Right. Like, yeah, it's you, this region is fighting you and you're still letting hundreds of trucks. I mean, I'm glad that they're doing it. It probably saved a lot of civilian lives on one end, but it also mm-hmm. killed a lot of people on the other end. Right. So it's very like. It's hard to know what to do with some of those decisions on the government side, too. Yeah, 100 percent. I do want to actually like get back to the aid issue. But I, I wanted to ask you about because I, I wanted to ask you about the Ethiopian American community in general. I'm curious how it's affected the Ethiopian American community. Do many of them feel like their government in Washington has like turned against them? And mm-hmm. the reason I ask this is because, again, like you were talking about some of these other countries, I've kind of seen that same pattern happen with certain communities when their country is being targeted by Washington. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not so much involved in politics, but I do talk to people that are, that have been in it for a very long time, that work on local elections, congressional elections. And yeah, they feel like they did all this work to to elect Democrats, you know, thinking that they would be in their best interest domestically and not thinking that they would go against them in their countries of origin. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of talk about feeling betrayed by the Biden administration. Um, there's a Virginia uh, is it congressional? I have to, I have to go back. Uh, governor, governor's governor, race. Governor, I, I only yeah. know because I'm from Virginia. Oh, are you? Okay, you're from <laughs> yeah. Virginia. Perfect. So reason, reason to pay extra attention, right? So yeah. they, they were able to actually turn that seat Republican, but because they're, you know, they're they they get the sense that at least with Trump, for whatever reason, there wasn't this much interference from the U.S. on the side of TPLF, right? So it's a very interesting dynamic. Uh, because, you know, just broadly speaking, people of color tend to vote in the direction of Democrats. Um, yeah. But then when you see that, OK, it might seem good to us here, but it's really damaging to our people back home. Um, there's a lot of uh, yeah disappointment, I think, is what it is, because a lot of people are very active. They, you know, they give money, they do what they can, they campaign um, and there's a sense of why, why, why not just support the government that's trying to be the government of all people instead of supporting this thing that we already know way too well and that we suffered under for far too long. And so that's kind of the general feeling. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to ask you about the hashtag no more campaign that people of the Horn of Africa have initiated this month. And you've been a part of this. Can you explain to our listeners and viewers what is this no more campaign and what's its purpose? So we started No More in November to say no more war, uh, no more false narratives that support killers over victims, no more media bias that helps uh, deconstruct and and break down uh, foreign countries, you know, no more ethnic divisions. Uh, a lot of the things that Ethiopians and Eritreans and uh, people of the Horn and apparently people from a lot of other different countries have been through. Um, it's, it's 2021. It just seems ridiculous that we keep turning to war um, to 
resolve conflicts or resolve political conflicts. And often it's not because they're necessary wars of, you know, resources or whatever the case it used to be in the past. They're wars that are really uh, fueled by the international system of so-called analysts that predict the worst, uh, uh, so-called journalists that lie about who's the killer and who's the victim, uh, that lie about uh, or that, that, that tend to support entities that are trying to break down an electri- uh, uh, democratically elected government. And it just seems, you know, so unnecessary. There's so many people that are killed. There's so many people that suffer and are displaced all over the world. Um, and we just want to say no more to all of those avoidable problems. Well said. And I, so I want to talk to you, Hermel, about the backlash, because um, not to make it like too just about you, but I think this is oh, important because right. it, speaks to, it yeah. speaks to something like broader about this issue is, you know, since coming out publicly against the TPLF's tactics, you've been the victim of a pretty vicious defamation campaign, including which include has included threats against your life from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, you know, what is it like as a Tigrayan di- diaspora activist to challenge the TPLF and what I've seen you call the Tigray genocide narrative. And what have you had to face since this like public coming out of yours? And what have you learned about the TPLF through your own experience with this? Yeah, so unfortunately, I look like an activist because there are no journalists. <laughs> you know, that's really what it feels like. It's, and that's sort of part of the reason why, um, you know, I've, I've taken some time off from my uh, job because that's what it looks like to them. You know, no matter how much I explain, no, this is really because there's no journalism. Um, so it's been quite a wild ride. Um, the thing about me is, one, I come from at least one parent who doesn't prescribe to this ethnic division, who's very much apolitical and is uh, very academic oriented. So um, I don't necessarily feel a loss because people of my ethnicity are not supporting me. Right. It's just, I just care that people support me because they believe that I'm trying to get to the bottom of the truth and that we're all working together to lessen the suffering of people. So as far as the backlash goes, of course, social media is kind of uh, the home base for where all that happens. You know, people say I'm pro Tigray genocide. I'm doing it for money. I'm doing it for a man. Uh, I'm, I'm being, <laughs> I mean, it's it just it's it like oh my God, literally man. that has, that has been a, 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 a whole narrative point that I've had to deal with. So it's part of it is you know uh, the culture is very patriarchal to put it nicely to put it nicely. So it's believable. This idea that a woman would only look like she would have such a change of heart or intellectual change of uh, heart because it has to be because of a man, right? It can't just be that she came to this conclusion because she has been working with some of you guys and has been paying attention to all of it and because she's been a journalist for 10 years and can actually formulate some of those thoughts. Um, and then the other element outside uh, social media, because it bothers me a lot less, although when it comes to, you know, when they start to bring in people that I know or people close to me, it, it affects me a lot more um, because they, you know, it's like people that had nothing to do with anything just getting wrapped up in my, you know, little world. So yeah. um, that's, that's, that's probably the most difficult part. And then the other element to it is people, you know, you know, family members, friends, so-called intellectuals in their own rights 
that are just saying, why is she doing this? Don't do it now. Don't say anything. Why is she? This is horrible. Sickening. Da, all this stuff. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I've got some family that says, go ahead, do your job, ask the questions. You know, we paid the price for you to have this freedom to be able to do this. You are not stuck there um, and having to uh, bend to the political will of folks there. So that's been uh, encouraging. But I do avoid talking to a lot of people because I did spend a lot of time with some folks in the beginning thinking this person's a good person. Like they'll consider some yeah. of these things. Right. And it's like, no, they've been so propagandized to think this is all about ethnicity. You know, uh, anyone that's dying is it's because it's worth us dying because this is about, you know, holding on to the race. I mean, it's primitive, honestly. It is so primitive. Like it does not, this does not reflect the majority of our experiences. You know, a lot of us are friends with Ethiopians of all backgrounds, people like me didn't even know. And a lot of people, a lot of Tigrayans will tell you this. I mean, they, they said it among the activism. I didn't even know, like people didn't like my ethnicity. That's so weird. <laughs> I've been friends with people. It's cause it's not true. Like it's cause right. you learned yesterday. Like that's, I mean, your, your life experience has to count more than what activists and politicians are telling you is the case. Right. And so, and, and, and beyond even like Ethiopians, like, People like me, like I've got friends from all backgrounds and, you know, here living in the U.S., people that have helped me that are, uh, you know, of all backgrounds that have hurt me of all backgrounds. So it's just a really primitive idea. And I find it really difficult to talk to some folks when that's kind of their premise to even have a conversation. And there's conversations you'll see on like Clubhouse and different uh, platforms like that, where I've been in these rooms that are mostly to grands. And then they don't even get to ask questions. They basically are told do you believe this is a genocide? And then if someone says, well, okay, but what I want to know, that, nope, you've got to say it's a genocide first. It's like, it, it leaves no room for conversations. Gosh, I like, you, it, there needs to be like a support group for people who have to deal with this. I can't tell you, like, not just myself, but I can't, you're like, there's just so many people who've had to deal with exactly what you're talking about, but like in it from a different part of the world. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> I, that's so interesting. I can't wait to learn more, honestly. Yeah. Like, cause, cause once this moves beyond like one country or the other, I think it's gonna be like an incredible like space to kind of work with in terms of truth telling and, and, and activism. A hundred percent. I do want to apologize for saying activists. I actually, people do that to me sometimes. And I'm like, no, no, it's journalists. So right. I apologize for misspeaking like that because what it's you are fun. doing is journalism. But I did want to ask you about um, a bit about kind of like the psychology of the TPLF activists, because you've been around some of these people and you've actually warned people against listening to what you call Tigray genocide activists. And so I, and I also saw you characterize being in the TPLF as kind of like being in a cult. So I'm curious if you can elaborate a bit on what you mean by that. If there is one thing I'm going to stick to is those things. Like it is a cult. Like it feels like a cult, right? Like, because literally like there's times where I've been in the inside of it where all I'm saying is, hey, don't say TPLF has never done anything wrong. I mean, you're saying a government that has been around for 27 years has done nothing wrong. It's impossible. Like, don't say that. You're not going to win people's like empathy over what's going on in Tigray. And that becomes a like, what? You're a Bondi. Like that's it's it's like, OK. All right. So, OK. And then there'll be another thing. And like, I'll I'll say it just a little bit differently, but really kind of agreeing with the person. And because I didn't say it exactly the same, they just like go crazy and assume that I'm like speaking up against them. So 
there's that is definitely the culture they've created. It cannot be. It cannot be the six million, seven million, however many people, including the diaspora, all think the same. It's that they have been conditioned to either think the same or to be afraid to say something if they don't think the same. And the thing about the Tigray genocide activists is like they will make fools out of you if you're a good person, right? Like they almost made a fool out of me because I was believing in what they were saying. And, you know, I was assuming that CNN, which who they were feeding information to or New York Times or AP was getting it right. And, you know, they have a um, little ally with uh, uh, people like Armenian genocide, the Uyghur genocide activist folks. They will invoke things like the Holocaust. I mean, I, I've been I've been caught up in some of this, like, you know, admittedly early on. Um, so it's it's like they will make fools out of you if you don't start questioning it, because their narrative is so black and white when the mm-hmm. truth is the leadership or some of the leadership that they are supporting actually started a war. And so therefore, in my opinion, is responsible for the majority of things that happen in that war. You know, when you start it, it's got to be it can't be 50 50 accountability. Like there has to be some more accountability on the entity that chose to start it. So it's it's, um, you know, they they entrap people like one of the ways that they do that is, for example, like me, like if I did not kind of wake up, like I would be in the position where I would have gone so far down this road, it would be like really difficult. I would do it because I was just that's me. But like it would be hard to backtrack. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And then the other thing they'll do is like, you know, in 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 Addis, they'll say like when they when they so-called captured Mekale or the government left, whichever one is is more true. Um, they had people celebrating like we're winning. Uh, same is true. And recently they got into Dese and Kambulcha. They'll have people celebrating and they'll say, hey, take videos of, you know, Debrezion uh, uh, or the spokespeople take videos. They're going to be on this TV channel and send it to us. Or, you know, people will celebrate in Addis. Next thing you know, they get rounded up. Because they're Mm. literally celebrating the downfall of the country that is giving them everything they have right in that moment. Right. It's like even in this, you know, so-called free country of the U.S., if they're fighting an entity and you are celebrating that entity that is fighting the country, you're going to go to jail. Like, I don't know why people want to hold the Ethiopian government to a standard that almost nobody In this entire world, no government in this entire world does. So if you're celebrating when the government, when you think the government's losing, which is something that's, you know, fed to them by officials and activists, then they go to jail, their businesses get shut down. And now they become invested in TPLF winning because they screwed themselves up. You know, they, they, they got messed up because of it. So it's just, it's, it's really like a full entrapment i i actually would i'm glad you brought that up because i wanted to ask you about it um a bit of what you just mentioned because currently for those who aren't aware you know the tplf is on an offensive trying to capture desi i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing desi and kambolcha these two major cities in the amhara region and they've gotten you know with plans to capture the capital um and it's still unclear if they're even going to be able to i'm not sure how much of that is like psychological warfare Mm -hmm. or if they actually like may do it i'm not sure but you know, like you mentioned, these Tigrayans that are actually living in these cities, they've actually lived peacefully alongside Amharas for many years. Um, but of course, in spite of that peaceful coexistence, there are these emerging reports that you just kind of alluded to of these Tigrayan sympathizers inside these cities 
not just celebrating, but actually assisting the TPLF, mm-hmm. who themselves, of course, are allegedly fighting alongside mercenaries and receiving satellite support from the U.S., mm-hmm. allegedly. But what are your thoughts on Tigrayan sympathizers of the TPLF in places like Desi and Kombolcha? And what advice would you give them knowing what you know today about the TPLF? Yeah, you know, there's a couple of ways I process that. On one hand, it is so disgusting to me. It is so disgusting to me that you would turn on neighbors that you've lived alongside for a very long time for this political group that has likely done nothing for you. Right. Like and that will likely do nothing for you later. Like they're just using you for this moment and that's it. So that's one element of it. The other and and, and I feel that same way with some of the diaspora folks. The other way I look at it is sometimes I think how much of a choice do these people have? Some of them. Are they being intimidated? You know, it's like if you don't want to do it, but your neighbor does it now, you look like you're not with them and they're telling you Mm -hmm. they're going to win and they're going to get back at you. They're, you know, they're they're vengeful. That's that means there's there's plenty of example of that. I mean, you could see it. So (laughs) this is way different than, you know, people getting killed there for not doing what they want to do. These people went after my job like there literally was a petition immediately after I asked oh, yeah, a few I saw questions. This. Yeah, yeah, a petition saying uh, I won't say the, the company's name, but you have a, a pro genocide reporter um, and you need, to, you need to fire her like maybe like got 10,000 signatures. And then there was an opposing signature Jesus. saying keeper. Yeah, yeah. Like 10,000 people thought their 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 political uh, perspective was important enough to try to get like destroy my career like that to me is like an ex- exemplary of what kind of culture and society has been created by this political group and then mm-hmm. you know there was an opposing um, petition that got more like 50,000 signatures but it's like it's it's neither here nor there but I say that to say like I don't know what people in Desse or Kombolcha or any other part what they're facing what Tigrayans face if they say no I don't want to be a part of this like you know so that's something that hopefully we'll get some clarity on but what I will say too is this is not good for the future of Tigrayans it's not good if it looks like we will always turn on our country for this group because they are powerful, because they have an international system that supports their agenda, regardless of whether they're doing right or wrong. We're just setting, paving the way for a future where we as an ethnicity are hated or as, as are considered traitors, you know? And, and it's just like, people don't get that. Like if you're gonna have to always rule by force, especially against the majority of a country. Like, I'm not going to say 100 million people are anti that group, but even if it's 60, like, it's still a lot of people that you're now going to have to oppress for how long because they're going to constantly try to fight you back because you literally help destroy their country for no reason, for no real good reason. So that's sort of what I think. I mean, well, you'll have people here, like Tigrans, that are here because they, like, left the war, They're being supported by Tigrayans because, you know, maybe they don't have a work visa or whatever. They can't work. So then they're like, again, they can't think independently, even if they wanted to or they can't express it. So it's a it's a very like locked in system that has so many different elements to it. And that's why you don't see a lot of Tigrayans speaking out. 
That's tough, man. I mean, th the other thing, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about what you had started talking about earlier is the issue of aid. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, one of the big things that you I think it was like the one of the first things that you kind of publicly said that got, you know, this sort of mob after you mm -hmm. um, was that you spoke out against the issue of aid and who's blocking it and sort of the weaponization of accusations like genocide and famine. And we've seen media reports, of course, accusing the Ethiopian government of preventing aid to intentionally cause famine and suffering and you know weaken their TPLF opponents. But then we also see accusations from the, the Ethiopian government that it's the TPLF that's to blame for blocking the aid. You talked about the aid trucks earlier uh, and the UN even said, like you mentioned about the aid trucks that like, dude, we sent fuel <laughs> with yeah. the aid trucks and never got them back. And then it was also interestingly enough, like USAID accused the TPLF of stealing their aid. Um, and then there's also, you know, the issue of this new report that came out, which you mentioned as well, which was this UN report that was in collaboration with this group formed by the Ethiopian government to address uh, or to investigate uh, human rights violations. And in this report that I think, you know, just it just came out like yesterday or today, uh, it actually didn't accuse anyone of causing a famine. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually saw that there was no accusation of genocide in this report. It was a very long report and it was pretty detailed. And you mentioned some of the massacres that were detailed in that report, but I didn't see genocide and famine in there. So I guess, what do you think is happening here with the weaponization of these claims? Uh, and, you know, is the TPLF like blocking aid or is this just an issue of it's a war? And because of what I, what I, what seems to be the case when I look at it and what you see happen in a lot of wars, which you also mentioned is like, if people are fighting, mm -hmm. it's really hard to get aid in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> The way the narrative of famine and aid has been used in this year of war literally makes me question everything I've ever known, including yeah, the right. last time that Ethiopia, or that I think I've known, the last time that Ethiopian war and there were claims of famine. Like, really, like, when you see how blatant the lies are like there. We know for a fact that the government was not blocking aid. Why? Because the Tigray leadership admitted to those 500 trucks coming in. I mean, when mm -hmm. you think about 500 trucks, like it's like you say 500, and it's like whatever. Right. But it's you no, know, that's a lot of trucks because they have to go in and they come back out and they got to go in and take more aid. Right. So if you hold them hostage for two months and it ended up being more like probably 800, if you hold them hostage for two months and then you're crying about the government blocking aid, it's like, you're a liar. Like, I don't know how else to say it. This is part of why I'm going in the direction of independent journalism, because I feel like part of what's wrong with kind of the standards of journalism is you're not allowed to say you're a liar. You're lying. Like, you know, because it's like, you said that you got the trucks, so then why were you saying the trucks were blocked? Oh, but we need, the UN says, oh, but we need at least like, or we need 100 trucks a day um, uh, to, go, to go in. Okay, but you that can't go in when they're holding on to 500, 600, 700 trucks then, right? So yeah. it is not true the government was uh, using aid as a, or using blocking aid as a weapon. Like, let's just get rid of that once and for all. And then um, the, the claim of genocide was not corroborated in, the report either because it I, I don't think that's that was the intention i mean that, that that was not if the government wanted genocide they would not be letting aid trucks in <laughs> risking 
these trucks coming back into these regions and actually killing people, which, you know, if you want to criticize the government, it's for stuff like that. Like, you know, why, why wasn't there? And maybe it's because the UN apparatus is too strong there. And some of the Ethiopians were getting sidelined, which is what two UN whistleblowers essentially said is, and the, uh, they aren't of Ethiopian descent. They were working in Addis and they were saying the top of the UN folks were uh, kind of sidelining the people in Addis to work directly with the people in Tigray, TPLF leaders to deal with the, uh, the humanitarian aid, which is just if the government wanted to do to eliminate this ethnicity, those kind of things would not have happened. And that is why I personally think that this is going to be the lie that shames Tigran activists and Tigrans for a very long time. You know, they went out on a limb and made such a huge claim knowing that this was a war and like I they've ruined the world genocide for generations you know it also just makes no sense too to me that like a force supposedly dealing with genocide and famine would be strong enough to advance on the capital like it's actually absurd when you think about it that anyone could believe there's a shortage of food and fuel when like this 200,000 strong military army is marching hundreds of miles fighting multiple battles after having been under siege for three months? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. But I'm curious, you know, why, when we think about the American position on this, it's just been so biased and one-sided in such a shocking way, I think, for a lot of people, because Ethiopia has been such a longtime uh, U.S. ally. Why do you think the Americans have taken the position they have? And how do you think it relates to attempts to maintain control over the Horn of Africa? That's a really good question. I mean, why does America do a lot of things they do? I mean, it, it literally, it, it doesn't make sense for a country that is supposed to have the equipment and the intellect. And like, you know, if you really wanted to do it right, you could, like you could. So I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, I know Ethiopia is a, a strategic uh, country in the horn. There's a lot of, uh, there was a report, um, a, 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 I think it's, not Institute for Peace, not World Peace Foundation, which is Alex DeWall's like hack organization. But yeah, Institute for <laughs> Peace. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I don't accidentally promote that Institute for Peace um, article because that, that's a whole thing that I. Yeah. I, oh my god. <laughs> I thought it was legit in the beginning, like really looking at it as a, as a source of information. Like it's so dangerous. Those things like that because it's part of Tufts University and Boston like and he's also really he's also really well respected in like the sort of analyst community so Mm. that's the other thing too but anyway you know every every that's that that's what makes this group so damaging you know they 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 get people in that are otherwise respectable and they kind of end up you know supporting their points um but uh so they 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 talked about this the the how important it is to um that the ethiopia to the horn and how arab states are involved and mm-hmm. you know the dam is another thing um between egypt a, 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 a tension point between egypt and ethiopia sudan's going through its different things so it's um it's very risky, I think, what the U.S. is doing, because just like we've seen in many other places, you come in, you support your friends, your old friends, you think you can make it go a certain way, and then it takes on a life of its own that is right. beyond what you expected, right? Like, one of my concerns is so many Ethiopians have become accustomed to blood and suffering, right? Like, what does that do to people? Like, people are going to be, like, 
you know, what does it do when you see like a family member that has been gang raped, when you see someone hacked, like this is not normal. Like it's not Mm -hmm. normal. Like I know people like to talk about like Africa, like this is what they do. They're used to this. No, it's not normal in Ethiopia. Like we're not used to this. Like, you know, maybe in some ways a poor country, but it's not like a violent country, not people on people violent, right? Maybe state on people violent. Um, so, and then you have the, the extreme factions of the Oromo groups and you don't know what they're intending to do. Um, you know, just like a lot of other times, like the partners that partnered cause they have a common enemy are going to eat each other up even yeah. within one political group alone, they're going to start hacking each other off. Like it's, it's only the beginning. Like I think a lot of Tigrayans or Tigrayan activists and even the top officials are celebrating this moment, but it's like, we're going to see, like we're going to see what you guys have created. It's absolutely terrible. And you, you had mentioned before these UN whistleblowers. Um, I wanted to, to turn for a moment to the UN. The Ethiopian government was harshly criticized for expelling seven senior UN officials for allegedly meddling in the country's affairs. And whether this was a wise decision is certainly debatable. However, it does seem as if the UN has been quite one-sided on this conflict. And we've seen leaked internal emails showing them to be to have been turning a blind eye to some of the TPLF abuses, both in Tigray and Amhara. And, you know, this is something that you've also raised. So can you tell us what is going on with the UN and has it been biased in this war? Yeah, you know, again, another lesson in this time is the UN is not what I thought it was. It's like if the UN said it, it must be true was sort of my thinking a year ago. Um, And now, you know, it's the UN that's quoted often in the uh, the Ethiopian government's de facto blockade of aid. Like that's who they're quoting. But then the UN is not uh, supporting or reporting or bringing up what UN Ethiopia says in terms of the missing trucks. Um, and so it's they're playing both sides. Um, and and I think those UN whistleblowers and what they said is huge. I mean, if journalism was alive. Mm-hmm. You know, like when it comes to these kind of things, that would be headlines. Like as opposed to, oh, the Ethiopian government kicked out seven people and everyone's like, you know, all the UN officials shocked, shocked, shocked. Okay, let's talk about why, though, because they've got we got two UN whistleblowers that are actually backing what they're saying. These two women have worked for the UN for 15 years and for 30 years. Like they're, you know, top officials. Right. So they're not some newbies or they're not like. These are people that we have to hear when they speak and risk it all, because what they're seeing, they're so disgusted by what they're seeing. As one of them said, she's never seen so much dishonesty and willful disinformation. Uh, She talks about how the top U.N. heads were sidelining the people in Addis that were supposed to be coordinating uh, how the aid went so they could keep up with it and are instead working with the political officials in Tigray. Um, so, it, you know, I think the secret's out, at least, you know, for people who didn't know before, there's always going to be some rogue UN actors and some might argue the system itself is um, is just really broken. I spoke with actually a former UN whistleblower who was a top anti-corruption official in Kosovo in 2007 who blew the whistle on his own colleagues who were taking kickbacks uh, from a local utility company there. And it was a seven year legal battle, like a nightmare. Like he lost his job. Wow. Uh, somebody tried to put a hit out on him. Jesus. And I asked him, 
Like, this is what we're talking about. Like, this is Earth, okay? This is this is a <laughs> inconvenient. It's like a Hollywood crime thriller. Like, what the hell? It's insane. Like, it's insane. It really starts to just, you know, if you if you go, you just wonder if, if it will ever be fixed. So he said that, because I asked him, what do you think? Are, are protection for whistleblowers better now? Because they, you know, have a policy, internal policy. He said, absolutely not. Uh, the UN is hopelessly corrupt. You, I, he literally said, "I would like to take a dynamite and blow it up." Jesus, <laughs> because it cannot be fixed. Like his words, it cannot be fixed. He said, "We need it. I believe in the original charter. Um, it could do so much good, but the way it is right now is so hopelessly corrupt. Um, and I think you just have to start over and build it up. I mean, it would not be possible." without certain actors within these humanitarian aid organizations to get aid to soldiers, to get communication equipment to soldiers, which were some of the allegations of the government, clearly they're getting help, right? Clearly mm-hmm. this group is getting help. And it is so disappointing when you know that that help is coming in the, in the guise of uh, humanitarian aid. One really quick point about that too, the AP's Cara Annam, wrote this whole starving like famine story with the starving kid as the main picture. And I wrote about this and that picture said it was unanimously provided my uh, suspicion from a Tigrayan activist who got it from yeah. a TPLF official. Cause I know how this whole thing works. Um, and she used that to frame this whole narrative about famine. And I thought we would never do this in journalism, let alone this huge, uh, this picture with huge implications. Uh, if you're talking to either hospital or the hospital in Tigray where this kid allegedly is, there's no reason why you can't get that picture sourced from that hospital. Mm-hmm. So it's like those kind of things that build whole, whole narratives that just really buys or gives credence to this idea that there is just a certain perspective of stereotypes that reporters and governments want to put on places in Africa and the Middle East. And I've had conversations with folks from South America who've dealt with literally the same thing, you know, and it's just, it's, I don't know, in 2021, it just has to be unraveled at least a little bit. And then the next generation can deal with the rest. (laughs) And I guess, you know, I nearing the end here, I want to ask you, what do you think Americans need to understand about this conflict? Like if there's one or two things that they can take away, because obviously most of our audience is American, what do they need to get when it comes to the conflict in Ethiopia? I would say, first of all, be really, really suspicious in what you read in Santa New York Times AP. I would, you know, unfortunately, I'm going to push you to listen to conversations like this because I don't even have a lot of one place sources for you. I mean, I do have a YouTube channel that's just now building up, but you know, people have asked me, where should we go? And it's like, oh, like I got to create a packet for you and connect all the dots. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause there's just so many, I mean, you guys are doing an amazing job. There was well, the one you. rap that Eugene did that I was able to see. And I was like, why is it so hard to understand? Why can't other people just <laughs> contextualize it like this? So what I would say is, So many disasters that seem very natural and that have just popped up are not natural. They did not just pop up. There's so many hands in it that have made it possible. And one of those arms are media. You know, Mm -hmm. they feed a narrative until they manifest it. Like, you know, and I don't necessarily believe in like the manifestation stuff, but really it gets to the point when you have an apparatus that is that strong 
you literally create the scenario that you're talking about when that was not what it was before. And it seems to me that, and this is from talking to folks in uh, that are connected to Haiti, it seems to me that anytime there's a government in a developing world that really wants to kind of get its stuff together, you know, let, let, let the economy grow so it can actually go down to the people, is a little bit more independent and does not want to be used and abused, the U.S. or the Western governments tend to turn on them. And then they tend mm-hmm. to support, like, we're supposed to be a pillar of democracy, right? And we are supporting, in this case, a rebel group, who st- a small rebel group at that, who started a war against the government and the people and are literally trying to undo an election that has already happened and take out a leader that enjoys support by you know, and the the majority of the country, if he was to go for election or when he went for election, he won. So I would say, you know, it makes me want to go back and look at, and I understand a little bit about Yemen, but it makes me want to go back and look at Yemen. I know we know a little bit more about Libya, but every crisis I've ever seen, I want to go back because I almost like guarantee you that the parallels, like I was telling you with like Haiti are just the same. Like yeah. these people are just like destined for disaster and war and famine. No, they're not. No, they're not. There's always more to it than that. And then oh. I guess to end on here, um, you mentioned your YouTube channel. Why don't like, can you tell people where they can follow your work? Yes. Yeah, so I am at Hermela TV across all platforms. So I'm on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, um, and Instagram. And the lengthier videos you'll find on YouTube, the more day-to-day commentary and sharing information you'll find mostly on Twitter. Well, Hermela Aragawi, Uh, Ethiopian-American journalist, thank you so much for joining us. Rania, thank you.